Hey, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to Disobedient. I'm your host, Peter Arena. Uh, this is Season 1, Episode 10, Part 2 of a little series I'm doing called Peak Disobedience. And um, so I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. But first, I wanted to do some quick housekeeping stuff. Um, just a reminder, we've got a new email address called peak, uh, excuse me, uh, disobedience. No, damn it. <laughs> uh, disobedient podcast at protonmail.com. One more time. Disobedient podcast at protonmail.com. I'd really, really love to hear from folks. Write it down. Send me an email. Uh, I want to get folks who think that they'd uh, make for a great conversation onto the show and be able to sit down with people and um, and chat. Um, you know, I've got a couple of folks that we're lining up right now. I think are going to be fantastic guests. Uh, I'm not going to not going to speak out of turn right now because we haven't finalized things. But these are some big hitters, so uh, those are in the works. In the meantime. Um, the other thing I wanted to do was make a clarification about last week's. I had mentioned that this this uh, this conference that uh, that King Hubbard M. King Hubbard had attended uh, was in Houston. I stand corrected. He was living in Houston, and he had delivered this uh, this this speech that was predicated upon. Uh, basically just a reading of an article that uh, a paper that he had written um, was in San Antonio, Texas. But that doesn't take away from the fact that, I, <laughs> that Houston is really the Vatican of, of the petroleum industry, and that remains the, the, the case even today. So um, resuming where we left off, we were kind of talking about how uh, uh, M. King Hubbard had more or less um, predicted, I think, very accurately the, the, the peak of petroleum extraction in the United States, in the continental United States, as early as uh, 1970-71, and he was dead on. And what we see in the rearview mirror, as some folks have put it, people like Richard Heinberg, who's written great books on, on this subject in the past, and uh, who really ought to be picked back up and, and read again, because a lot of the things that uh, Richard Heinberg spoke about have, in fact, come to pass, just like M. King Hubbard's predictions have come to pass. And that is, in the rearview mirror, we see that uh, the ir irrespective of whatever kind of efforts that are placed by the industry to extract oil and gas at ever faster rates, they can't because um, the the replenishment rates of any given well or well field just can't keep up with the rate of growth that's required in order to ma match the what was is typically a one to three percent per annum uh, increase demand that is basically the foundation of capitalism. We need we need that um, continuous growth. That's a side story. So um, what happened? What, well, we saw because the United States was no longer the swing producer of petroleum in the world, 
Um, that afforded uh, the, the, the newly created OPEC, oil-producing, exporting countries, uh, coalition of governments um, in, uh, around the world to take the place of the former uh, global controller of oil production rates, which was the Texas Railroad Commission. And by the way, I'm going to put into show notes stuff about the Texas Railroad Commission, about uh, M. King Hubbard, about peak oil, so you can pursue them. It's, it's, not, it's not hidden history. It's just unobserved history, um, like so many things. Um, so what happened uh, after that is that you see, you see now that the, the, the ability to control the oil then goes to other countries. We had the oil embargo in uh, 1973. We saw the, the ratcheting up of, of petroleum uh, prices um, and, and gas prices, and uh, it, it had its effect. And so the United States then embarked on completely different geopolitical um, tactics to uh, continue to ensure its, its uh, uh, hegemony over um, markets around the world. Um, ultimately, we saw the, the United States effectively um, go bankrupt and, um, and foreclose on its own, uh, its own debts uh, to other countries when, uh, in, again, in 1971, the Nixon administration, uh, quote-unquote, closed the gold window, the, uh, the ability for other countries to redeem their, uh, their debts uh, their, their, I should say their holdings with, um, uh, of U.S. dollars in gold was then rescinded. And then the United States ultimately became um, uh, ensconced in relationships with the, the Saudi government uh, when we basically made an agreement to militarily protect and furnish uh, the, the Saudi government, royal, royal family, um, with uh, military aid in exchange for the OPEX and the, therefore the global community of oil-producing countries to exchange oil in dollars, in U.S. dollars. And so that became the beginning of what we call the petrodollar. And, um, and that had um, a massive effect and, ha- and has continued more or less up until present day. We're now seeing the crumbling in the past several years, the crumbling of that petrodollar hegemony by the United States and its um, windfall uh, benefits it has uh, had for the United States as a, um, as a basically a controller of, of other people's economies and, um, and the fact that we we realize a, uh, a, a great deal, a, an amazing um, benefit from the fact that the United States basically prints its own money, whereas everyone else has to buy dollars in order to have the dollars to bu- purchase their necessary petroleum to run their own countries. So that's a, that's a little n- bit of a sidebar. But um, you see that these massive, these massive dominoes fall 
um, and happened as a result of this peaking of oil in the continental United States. So now we fast forward um, over the years. Uh, uh, obviously, M. King Hubbard had a lot of students that followed him. He was um, he was basically the mentor to um, a, a great many uh, petroleum geologists and and mathematicians and, and statisticians who who were in the in the field working for different oil producing co- companies and. One of them was uh, a fellow by the name of Colin Campbell, another fellow um, who was British, and another fellow by the name of Ken DeFaze, both of whom were un, uh, were silent about their advocacy of of Hubbard's um, Hubbard's views while they were employed, but then once they were retired and um, safely ensconced in their own and their own retirement uh, benefits, then they started to speak out. Uh, sound familiar? Um, so then Campbell and DeFaze um, began publishing and speaking out about the fact that they had been working hard to make a reasonable projection about where, uh, when, I should say, when, we can we could anticipate the peaking of conventional oil production in uh, on the planet, and so uh, they, DeFaze especially, uh, he he said, you know what, damn it, we're going to we're going to put a, a date on it, and he and he said Thanksgiving of twenty of two thousand four was going to be the date that the. Uh, the, the world peaked in conventional oil. And if um, if it's possible to look at some of the statistics, you can do so, uh, you'll see that sure enough, uh, it was around the fall of 2004 that conventional oil production rates began to falter in earnest. And we effectively uh, hit peak conventional oil on the globe in late 2004. And a lot of things have happened subsequently that, again, in the rearview mirror, uh, represent the um, represent the, the confirmation of that fact. And one of those things was the 2008 um, um, housing market bubble meltdown and the credit crisis that that ensued. Now, a lot of people would say, well, no, that has nothing to do with it. I argue um, otherwise, because basically, again, uh, uh, pursuing this this idea that that ultimately things are predicated upon the availability of petroleum to do the work that we need. We if we come to make the assumption I think I think the valid one that that oil is the precursor and the driver of economic activity um, at its at its foundation. Then um, basically everything that that follows is going to be a result of the availability of that petroleum. And so when that availability begins to falter, then a lot of other things have reverberating repercussions. And one of those was this credit crisis 
that occurred as the, the subprime mortgage um, market melted down. And, and we saw the global interconnectedness of that and how it not didn't just affect the United States, it affected pretty much every country on the planet. And we saw a, a, global, a global default um, problem in, in markets um, and, uh, and countries' economies. And so that was a was a knock-on effect of this of this phenomenon. And I think that a lot of the things that we've also seen in way of of alternative uh, energy production, and I don't mean just sun, you know, solar, photovoltaics and wind and things like that, but we we've seen this uh, this urgent uh, need and desire to to ramp up biomass, but I think more importantly and more uh, uh, even more closely related to this this peaking of conventional oil uh, in two thousand four is the the subsequent and almost near immediate rise in the the whole hydrofracturing or fracking uh, phenomenon that. Um, here in upstate New York, where I live, uh, became a big, big issue where in Pennsylvania, it took off, um, you know, like, like a wildfire and hydrofracturing, um, activities were, were going on everywhere in portions of, portions of, uh, Northern and Central, uh, Pennsylvania. And here in New York state, many of us were looking, uh, you know, with, with astonished, um, horror that that was potentially going to be happening here because we saw the environmental impact that um, hydrofracturing was was having on the landscape and um, the water supply and and we didn't want it here and so it became a big issue for us because we wanted to just basically protest it and and keep it out of our out of our home state we ultimately more or less succeeded in doing that but the the bigger phenomenon of, of going after uh, fracked gas and oil was was basically a byproduct of the fact that those things that sort of activity was not economically feasible or profitable until we had reached the the, the peak in, in conventional oil. If you if you've got oil gushing out of the ground and you don't have to spend a lot of energy to get it out of the ground, then that's what you're going to go after. When, um, when the hard-to-get-to stuff, the stuff that requires a lot of technological ex- expertise and a lot of capital up front in order to get it out of the ground um, becomes profitable, it's only as a function of the fact that uh, you've run out of uh, the the easy to get stuff. I mean, this is not this is not hard a hard concept to to uh, get your mind around. And so we we've seen all over the all over the world the the rise in this um, this attempt to capture these non conventional sources to supplement and make up for the 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 downfall in production of conventional uh, oil sources. So that's that's basically a, a quick wrap up of of that, um, and so we've it kind of brings us brings us around to this this bigger issue. I think I, what I wanted to do was 
is kind of transition off of this little history lesson and this kind of background, which, you know, we could spend, you could spend days and days talking about this because there are a lot of nooks and crannies and, and details that could be gone, gone into. But what I'm trying to get to in talking about this is that we have, we have this, this underlying foundational, uh, uh, resource that is the that is the essence of what everything that we're doing on this planet as as human beings um is is wrapped up in we where goes the oil goes us and so um let's fast forward to 2019 2020 and and we've got this this so-called pandemic now um Anybody who's listened to this podcast and uh, or listened to me and knows me personally knows that um, I I bought into the whole uh, uh, Corona pandemic um, at the very beginning. I was I was wiping my hands and and putting the sanitizer on and and I was out looking for masks um, back in in uh, January and February of 2020, and I. I thought I saw this thing coming and I, I'm listening to certain people on the, on the internet and like, oh my God, this thing's going to come. It's going to, it's going to crash on our shores and we're going to see millions and millions of people dead. And, and I was freaking out. Um, and, and so when the time came for everybody to lock down, I did so, I did so willingly and, um, you know, wasn't happy about it, but, uh, you know, everybody just kind of, you know, uh, gained the 15 pounds that they did um, sitting on their couches and, and lying in bed, <laughs> not getting a whole hell of a lot done and, uh, um, and getting uh, engrossed in, in all sorts of nonsense on, online because we, uh, we didn't have, we had all this time on our hands and uh, nothing to do. And it was only because of certain people in my life that I began to listen to um, have an open, open mind to listening to. And, um, I began to question some of the things that were not making sense. And the, the deaths didn't appear to be happening as they were saying. And, um, this test didn't seem to be testing what they said it was supposed to be testing. And gee, how did they come up with this test so quickly? And um, wait a minute, this test doesn't actually test for the actual virus? You mean that it's just testing for a uh, some, some you know, nucleotide sequences that uh, some amino acids that, that have been chained together that, um, oh, could be uh, construed as this so-called COVID virus? but is also potentially shared by many other things. And, oh, wait a second, um, you mean to tell me that the the way you conduct the test um, indicates that you could be um, you could be basically making much ado about nothing because you've you've amplified the the quantity of this minute chain of, of chemicals to the point that it, it's not even, um, it, 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 it could show up in anything, anywhere, um, and becomes a mean, becomes meaningless, but also becomes a very, very powerful tool in, 
in um, persuading people to believe that there's something um, something terrible happening when in fact nothing terrible is happening. And, um, oh, wait, you mean to tell me that um, most of the people that are dying are really, really old people? And, oh, wait, you mean the average age of of the person who's dying from this is actually an age older than um, the average age of death? And wait a second, hold on. You mean to tell me that the people who are dying of this thing um, actually have on average 2.6 other comorbidities um, plaguing their bodies and um, it may not be and in all likelihood is not the 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 principal source of their demise. And so it goes on and on like this. And so, I mean, it's, it's not even worth rehashing how insane and how completely irrational and how manipulated we had been um, since this began to um, to go into all of this. But w- what I want to do is just kind of go up above all of this uh, this control apparatus that that was a f- very very effectively um, uh, basically thrown down over us this this shroud of control that took place where we saw in lockstep the the implementation of so much um, either through government. Um, and their their bureaucratic minions um, at every level down to down to the city and county levels of, of health departments we saw the the media at every level whether it's the the international and and you know global um, large media uh, conglomerates the social media we saw it in the hospitals and the the insurance companies and the and the, the doctors associations and the universities, everyone was on board and increasingly so spoke in unison and in tune with one another on this subject. And um, ultimately it led to the, the, the acceptance and then enforcement of the uh, ad- administration of these of these so-called vaccines. These are not vaccines. I don't care what anybody uh, tries to convince me. These these technologies were developed um, with, at best, shoddy quote unquote science. Um, they were developed in a in a fashion that now that the the evidence is being revealed is demonstrating that they are they are nothing. Uh, they have nothing to do with with fighting the the corona p- pandemic and the and covid-19 they have everything to do with destroying destroying people's health and and in many cases i think that there's a there's a very clear case being made by people who are seeing what seems to be we don't even know what it is but it really looks like some sort of carbon nanotube uh, graphene oxide uh, structures that are being built inside people we're, we're hearing we're hearing stories of of people giving off um, their own little Wi-Fi signals it's it's really spooky stuff so and of course the the big the big elephant in the room is the fact that 
we are seeing now um, uh, all cause mort- mortality r- uh, rates going through the roof. That year year on year mortality rates have been ratcheting up heavily since these since these injections have been administered um, with ever uh, greater frequency. And um, I think that once we start getting, again, the rear view mirror uh, perspective on this, we're going to see that a lot of people, a lot of people have been uh, dying in excess to the, on the order of millions and millions of people. Um, Steve Kirsch, uh, who's a, a now retired more or less, 